This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome into the Ots and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopel is with me as always. And today is a Wednesday mailbag. Uh, mailbag Wednesday on the Odds and Audibles podcast where you, the Duck fam, you give us the questions. You kind of steer the ship, if you will. Uh, you decide where we go on the show. We answer all the best questions that we've received throughout the week. Um, Eric, I think there's a good mixture, right? Like I, I you sent over the questions uh, this morning uh, and I was looking them over, and for the most part, it's kind of like a little bit of recruiting, a little bit of football, a little bit of basketball. We're in that busy season. Yeah, no question. No, we we are in that in the heart of that busy season. There are men's and women's basketball games going on all the time right now. Uh, that's just getting started. Obviously, the the big exhibition win for the women, the men starting two and zero. Possibly, I guess when you're listening to this podcast, it could be a slightly better record. Um, but yeah, no, th- th- it's, there's a lot going on right now, and, and the questions reflect that. So it's kind of fu- and it's kind of fun to not that we don't love sitting here answering football only questions for 40 minutes or so, but it is fun having a little variety. Uh, and today's questions will reflect that. There will be, like Matt said, some football questions, some recruiting questions, some men's and women's basketball questions. So a little bit of flavor from from kind of everything today. So I think it'll be kind of a fun show, a little bit more of a, uh, I guess a, a mixed bag than than what we've seen. Uh, previously on this kind of show. Now, we should note that we record this on Tuesday afternoons, Tuesday morning sometimes. Um, we will not know ahead of time, obviously. If we did, I would be putting a lot of money on something uh, somewhere uh, of the college football playoff rankings. So our reaction from that is not going to be listed here. Um, but that being said, I think it's safe to say we kind of have a general idea of where Oregon's going to be at. It would be a pretty... Big shocker if uh, they don't go where we're going to talk about them being in that general vicinity later on in the show. So just keep that in mind. Um, we don't have reaction of the college football playoff on this one uh, just because we have to record this before the, the playoff is released. So, uh, Eric, you lead the show on this one. Go ahead. And one other thing, we also won't know the result of Oregon's game with Memphis. So when we're talking about men's basketball later in the show, we won't have that result. Um, oh, I have that result. I'm just not oh. telling anybody. Oh, sorry. My bad. Matt does have that result, but he won't be telling anybody. So yes. you'll have to be. <laughs> and Matt, in that case, you should definitely be putting a lot of money uh, in Vegas. Uh, in <laughs> that one, right now, you've got about eight hours till tip off. And uh, you can make yourself some nice money if you have, if you have that you think result could, already. You think you could get to like... What, what's the furthest distance you could go for being in Eugene or being, let's say Portland, because it's easier to get to, to Vegas. You live in Portland. What, what is the, how late can you leave in the morning to get to Vegas, place a bet, and fly back to watch a game played in, in, in Eugene or in Oregon? Uh, I, I don't know the Vegas flight plan off the top of my head here, Matt, but, uh, I, I don't know. Is that something you're looking to do today? Is that, is that, is that <laughs> should be well, six o'clock tip makes it a little difficult, but we'll, we'll, we'll figure that one out. 
All right. Well, let's start with uh, we're starting football, and I think it's a kind of a fun question to start with. But from at Josh Harden underscore four, a month ago we were ready to open up a checkbook for Andy Avalos to essentially ignore uh, possible head coach opportunities. Are we still there after the last three games? And he writes in parentheses, he definitely deserves a nice raise, in my opinion. Uh, to me, nothing has changed in terms of like the, the big picture with Andy Avalos. I still think he's the best defensive coordinator I can think of Oregon having in quite some time. Uh, I know Jim Levitt did some really nice things. I know uh, Nick Aliotti obviously was here for a very long time, had some really, really good defenses. But I think Andy Avalos' ceiling remains very, very high. And, and what he's getting at with the last three games is, is what all Oregon fans have known, is, is they were on an incredible tear defensively through the first six games of the season uh, and then had kind of a couple of, I don't want to say slip-up games, but they faced a little bit better offenses against Washington. They gave up 31 points. Washington State, that air raid offense, they gave up 35. USC, they gave up 24, although I think that was a pretty impressive defensive performance when you put together the turnovers they forced, uh, the way they were able to at least slow down those receivers for USC. I mean, heck, Arizona State, which is another good offense, gave up like 300 yards and four touchdowns in the first quarter against USC uh, last week. So uh, in pre- I think that one was maybe less on the cause for concern side. But he had, the, the defense has not performed at quite that same level. But I still feel like you have to find a way to keep him here as long as possible. And I, I don't know, again, what the, the number is in terms of the figure of how much you need to pay him to keep him around here. But you can't let this be a one-and-done thing for Andy Avalos. We've said that a number of times on the podcast. If, he, if you can keep him here for two, three, four, maybe even like five years, you're talking about building an absolute dynasty in terms of that defensive side of the football, especially with the way they've already started to recruit with, and we'll talk about this throughout the show, the way that they might be able to finish out this 2020 recruiting class here in the last month before that December signing period. Uh, just a lot of things to be optimistic about. So, yeah, I think we should all acknowledge the fact that you know, and, and, I, and I'll include myself in this. Maybe we got a little bit ahead of ourselves with that incredible touchdown streak that they had there where they gave up one touchdown uh, in like five games. They looked incredible. It didn't like anybody could score on them. I think what we're seeing now over the course of just conference playing kind of those averages is probably more what this defense is, which is a very, very good defense, but not one that even, not one that when they face the elite offenses of the conference uh, is going to completely shut them down. I think in football today, we should also acknowledge like, it's really hard defensively when you're playing an offense like Washington State or USC with all these big play receivers on the outside to to find a way to like keep them completely off the scoreboard. So, uh, yeah, I think just summarizing, yeah, I think you, you want to keep them around, but you also recognize the fact that sometimes it's really hard to stop offenses, especially in this conference. Well, I'm really happy that you want to keep Andy Avalos around. Uh, yeah, breaking <laughs> news. I want to keep him around. I don't want him fired. Um, I I. Look, I am still all in on Andy Avalos because as, as much as the, the defense has allowed points the last couple of games, they're still 10th in the country in scoring defense, right? Like, they're still 20th in the country in total defense for yards allowed per game. They're 12th in the country in yards per play. So even though Oregon's defense got carved up a little bit by Washington – and then Washington State, and then in that first half against USC, they're still putting up absolutely ridiculous and bonkers numbers. And the most, I think the most impressive thing is that there was not a single player on this defense 
recruited specifically for Andy Avalos's defense. True. Like he's doing this with guys that weren't specifically recruited for how Oregon's now operating on the defensive side of the football. That doesn't mean guys can't have success in that defense and 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 shoot, there might be players on this team that because of Andy Avalos's scheme are now playing better than they were under Jim Levitt or uh the year before that under Brady Hoke. Uh, so I'm still all in on Andy Avalos. I still think he's a high up-and-coming def- uh, coordinator. He's probably going to get overtures by some programs, whether it's uh, – I'm just going to throw names out. I'm not – I have no idea if those schools are even going to be open or not, just throwing them out there. But a San Jose State, a UNLV, uh, a – what happens if like a, an FCS school calls him like a Sacramento state and says, Hey, we want you to be our head coach. You know, like those could happen still. It wouldn't surprise me. It, it would, it would maybe be a little bit of a risk, but it wouldn't necessarily be that big of a surprise either. Um, does he deserve a raise? I would think so. I mean, you don't want someone else. You don't want like, you know, Clemson to lose their defensive coordinator and they, they come in and just say, Hey, you know, you're, you're an elite coordinator. You know, you're not being paid as you should be. We're going to compensate you for that. You, you know, and so there's always that fine line of how much is too much and how much is not enough. Like I think they, and having the understanding of when and where to, to place, um, that contract extension, I think Andy Avalos is probably going to have something redone. Uh, it's just me speculating, but it, it would not surprise me at the end of the football season, uh, moving forward that Oregon kind of restructures his contract a little bit. And, uh, we sh- I, I should say as well, I agree. I think that's de- deservingly so, especially if Oregon finishes the regular season like we think they will with, with winning the remainder of their games, goes out and wins the conference championship and, and then plays really well uh, in a bowl game, whether that's in the college football playoff, the Rose Bowl, the Cotton Bowl, what have you. Um, I, I agree. I think you have to find a way to make sure that this young up-and-coming coach is really happy. Next question from at JD High Roller. Hear me out. Could a late-season Auburn implosion actually benefit the Ducks in fighting Alabama for the fourth playoff spot? It's an interesting question. Uh, looking at Auburn's schedule really quick, they are hosting Georgia this week. They then play Samford the following week, which is, again, kind of that typical SEC scheduling where you're playing an FCS team in you know late November. And then they do host Alabama on the 30th. Um, so they two of the last three games are against teams that Oregon wants Auburn to beat. Um, and I think we can kind of safely say Oregon would be ahead of Auburn if Auburn were to win out. Maybe maybe not. Maybe the head-to-head. But the fact that Auburn's lost two games so far this season, I would think it would give Oregon the edge over them considering Oregon's lost just one right now. But I actually think I would go the other way. I think what would really help Oregon is if Auburn goes out and beats Georgia and then goes out and beats Alabama. Uh, that would push basically those other two teams off the radar off. as well. They would be, they would be done. They would, yeah. They would. So I think actually, you know, and and I, I get I get the point that he's making in terms of like if Auburn is just really bad and loses their last three game, like loses these last two games, maybe that like maybe that minimizes the victory for Alabama. But I also think if you're going to look at <clears throat> Auburn and say like, oh, that's a oh, that's not that good of a win for for uh, Alabama at the end of the season that, well, Auburn's losses would be to Florida, LSU, Georgia, and Alabama. Those are four of probably the top 12 teams in the country, depending upon what 
ranking service you're looking at. I feel, still think a four-loss Auburn team with those four losses would be considered a, a very high-quality one, and it would be Alabama's best win. So I, I actually would go the other way, though. I think if, if Auburn can go out and, and pick up two upsets here, that might make them kind of a, a trendy team late here for the playoff in terms of Auburn. Uh, they're currently 13th in the playoff book, and we don't know where they're going to be uh, in, in this updated rankings that come out tonight. But I, I would actually go the other way and say I think it might actually be better for Oregon if Auburn just sort of stuns a couple of these top SEC teams and knocks them out of the playoff. What do you think, Matt? 100%. Oregon wants Auburn to, to win out, essentially, at this point, because they have two losses. And more than likely well, – not more than likely. It, it's like darn near impossible for them to win their division. So they're not going to be in the college football playoff. So if Oregon can, or if Oregon can see Auburn beat Georgia this weekend, that eliminates the Bulldogs from college football playoff discussion. And then in, a, in two weeks, if they beat um, the Alabama Crimson Tide, that knocks out Alabama from the college football playoff. And now all of a sudden, Oregon is seventh going into the college football rankings. That will be released today. Two of those six teams ahead of Oregon would now have two losses on their schedule and be out of the college football playoff. Penn State might not win their division. Um, they may have to play, uh, if they, and they still may lose too. You know, there's still a game that they might be able to lose. Uh, that could eliminate another team. And now all of a sudden you're, you know, the thing gets wide open. So, it, you want Auburn to win out. You want Auburn to to beat Georgia, and you want Auburn to beat Alabama because that widens Oregon's berth into the college football playoff tremendously. And it also benefits Oregon in terms of their, their strength of schedule, which we yep. should mention. I think I saw was the third best schedule of any of these top, I think, eight or nine teams right now in the playoff discussion. So Oregon, for all of the questions about, man, has Oregon played a tough enough schedule? They have. The issue is they just haven't picked up that win yet. Um, over a, a kind of a top 25 caliber team. And, and that's what hurts their resume right now is they just don't have that big victory. Fortunately, sitting at the end of this whole thing should be Utah. And if Utah keeps winning out and Oregon keeps winning out, and again, this is what we've talked about a couple times in the podcast, I think that sets up a potential win in your in game um, in Santa Clara on December 6th because those two teams would be one-loss teams. They'd be division winners in the Pac-12. Um, and, and I would imagine, get, at least based upon the trajectory they're on right now, that would be like the sixth best team against the seventh best team, or maybe even like the fifth against the sixth, something in that range. So uh, that's that for Oregon, that Utah game is, is really the one that I think could get them over the top if both those teams keep winning. And that brings us to the third question, which also touches on kind of the same topic from at Andrew J. Cohen 22. Does it hurt Oregon that except for Utah, there is no depth in the Pac-12? I actually think there's a lot of depth in the Pac-12, and that's sort of what the issue is. Um, there yeah, there's are, a, there's too ahead. many good teams. Yeah, I, I think that's what it comes down to, is that the fact that these teams have just beaten up on each other, there's there's only two teams ranked in the top 25 right now, and actually only Washington received any votes from either the AP or the coaches outside of Oregon and Utah. So there really are only two teams. Now, the, the issue is is that I, I actually think that the middle of the conference, like teams three through eight, I would take teams three through eight from the Pac-12 and match them up against most teams in the country and say, like, that's a that's a tough out almost every week. Like, you, you can it's not a lot of games in the schedule you can point to and go, like, oh, there's a gimme game. There are just a lot of teams that are kind of in the middle there that are really competitive with each other. And that's what's hurt the Pac-12 maybe a little bit is just that 
there are going to be a ton of bowl eligible teams, but like there's probably only going to be Oregon and Utah that have more than you know seven or eight wins. So um, I, I kind of would go the other way, Andrew, on that one. I, I think there is considerable depth. I think what hurts the conference or hurts Oregon and Utah is that there isn't that signature win. It would really help if there was a like it would help both teams if Washington had only lost to Oregon and Utah rather than using losing to Stanford and Cal. Like that would that would really help both teams. Like if if Washington was kind of that. Maybe they were, you know, seven and two right now, and they were 17th or 18th in the college football playoff. Their two losses were to Oregon and Utah. That would really help those two teams because you could point to that being kind of their signature win right now. Where, whereas right now you kind of point to their signature win, and it probably still is Washington for Oregon and Utah. Maybe it's USC, but there isn't doesn't quite carry that cachet because they also lost a couple other games and have just have kind of not been what we expected they would be this season. So. I get the point of the question, but I, I would kind of disagree with the there's no depth in the Pac-12. I just think there's not the, uh, the the third or fourth top tier team that kind of gets you over the top. And this is where the Pac-12 playing five conference games in – or, excuse me, nine conference games and not eight like the SEC comes into play because you look across the SEC and you have one, two, three, four – five, six, seven, eight teams out of 14 that currently are bowl eligible uh, or have a winning record. Uh, you've, you've got Mississippi State that still has three games to play and needs to win two to get to bowl eligibility. Ole Miss, uh, I think they are in some kind of probation period right now, but they're four and six. They still have bowl life available to them. Kentucky, Four and five, three games left. They need to win two to get to a bowl game. South Carolina, you know, look, they're, they're four and six and they need to win two games to get to a bowl game. But the reality is this, is that all of these teams, you, you've got eight teams that are, that have winning records right now. Well, a couple of them would have one extra loss because they only play eight conference games and, and you eliminate the fact that everyone in the conference is going to get one extra win. Half those teams there's seven more losses right then and there uh in the conference to, to deal with and that matters it's, you know when you have a team that goes eight and four and they they went they they win four non-conference games and, and and they go four and four in conference play well all of a sudden that that team loses a, a conference game and they're seven and five and that looks significantly worse than than eight and four or a seven and five team goes to six and six or a six and six team goes to, to five and seven. You know, all that stuff matters. And that's where the Pac 12, that's where I think the Big Ten, and that's where I think the, the, the Big 12, they are at a disservice because they choose to play non-conference, nine conference games, whereas the Atlantic Coast Conference and more importantly, the SEC, they choose to play eight conference games and four non-conference. And that allows you to stack more wins and thus Make your conference better because the teams that you do play in conference all have an extra win. Yeah, no, and, and I think I'm actually at the point here where if you can't beat them, join them. Yeah, I, that's where I'm at. I, I think you know I, I I love I actually like the current model for the Pac-12. I think it makes a lot of sense. But if there are other conferences benefiting from something that a little different, then I'd say go to that. Go to just I know I know it's not going to be necessarily popular for the season ticket holder who would rather face. You know, if you're an Oregon fan, would rather face UCLA than I don't know San Jose State in mid-November. But like, maybe you go that route because it's working for the USC for, for the SEC. 
uh, time and time again, it's benefited that conference. So yeah, I'm with you, Matt. Like, I, and, and again, you look at the conference right now. Pac-12 is going to have a, a ton of teams in bowl. It's pretty wild. Like every team has at least four wins in the Pac-12 right now. There's no team here that, is, that has no bowl eligibility hopes. Every team has aspirations to make a bowl game, which is pretty wild if you think about it. When you're this far into the conference or this far into the season, like the worst record teams are four and five. Actually, Colorado's now four and six, but there, there just there is no team at the bottom here. And so you're right. If you were to subtract a uh, a conference loss for you know a bunch of these teams and instead put a game with a very winnable opponent like we said San Jose State I don't know who it would be that would be a, a huge difference in terms of just I think the perception of some of these teams in the conference it doesn't necessarily mean the team's any better but again perception is so critical uh, this time of year all right next question comes from at Clear Duck if you watch the Washington Arizona game Washington contained Cleo Tate by coverage and by making him run to his left he can't throw downfield going to his left. Do you think Oregon can exploit this? We should start out by saying that on Monday, Kevin Sumlin said that they still haven't made a determination between Khalil Tate and Grant Gannell. Um, they're, they're kind of still working with both quarterbacks, trying to figure out. Basically, he said, whoever practices better this week will get the nod, which is an interesting thing to be talking about this far into a season. Like You're like 10 weeks into the year, and you still don't necessarily know who your quarterback is. I don't know if that's a good thing. Probably not a good thing, considering they've lost four straight games, but um, we don't know for sure who Oregon will face. So yeah, maybe, maybe they'll try to figure out some ways to, you know, to contain Khalil Tate, but they could also be having to find ways to, to contain Grant Gannell. So it's kind of an interesting chess match here. I'm sure this is, and I'm sure if you're Kevin Sumlin, you weren't going to come out on Monday and say, Hey, Oregon, here's our quarterback. Get ready for this guy. Like it makes sense if you're playing the chess match to say, Hey, we haven't made a decision yet, even if you have an inkling of, of which way you'll go. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if Tate comes out there, the, the game plan is to don't let him break containment. So that means whoever's coming off the edge just have to take a wide berth and just prevent him from getting outside the tackles. Uh, and then it's dropping guys into coverage. And if Oregon can, can create some kind of pressure with three or four man push, you know, that drops everybody back. That, you know, that, that, that drops anywhere from, from eight to the seven guys into the secondary for coverage. And Khalil Tate's not a good passer when he's being asked to be a pro style, sit in the, in the pocket type, you know, make reads. It's just not his game. It, and we've talked about it before on the show. I, I think they've done a really bad job with him, uh, trying to make him a pro style quarterback. But now if Grant Gunnell comes in, like you said, Kevin, someone says is, you know, they haven't made a decision. There's, there's certainly some gamemanship to that. I think, yeah. um, you know, that changes things a little bit. But I think overall, it's just how much pressure can you generate where it's, wherever it's coming from? And on top of that, how much pressure can, can you get enough pressure with sending the least amount of guys? Because if, if you can, if you can get pressure consistently at his face with three or four guys, you're in a, a position where you're going to dominate. All right. Uh, let's come back from a commercial break. Uh, we'll continue this. Uh, Odds and Audible's mailbag coming up. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. 
Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. All right, welcome back to the Odds and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prame. Eric Scopel is with me as always. We're answering your questions uh, from an Oregon football, Oregon basketball, Oregon recruiting perspective. Uh, Eric, question number five. Comes from right away now. Ooh. It's, it's a two-part question here, and I like the decisiveness of that, uh, of that Twitter handle, right away now. Uh, who, if any, players might see some late action this season without having to burden their redshirt seasons? And then second question, when it comes to recruiting, on both sides of the ball, what are Oregon's biggest areas of need? Um, in terms of seeing late season action and not burning their redshirt year, uh, probably good to start with. There are two true freshman wide receivers in J.R. Waters and Lance Willahoy. I'm not sure those guys are either of them are going to be like big contributors, but if these games upcoming become blowouts, and, and we should say we're not sure these players are available just yet. In fact, Cristobal was kind of cautious in saying even if they're able to practice fully, that doesn't necessarily mean they're they're ready for game action just because they've been out for such a long time. But those are guys whose names you should maybe be aware of because neither of them have played a single game this season, meaning that if they were to start playing at this point of the year, there would be no concern basically about burning a redshirt year unless you were to play them, I guess, in the final regular season games, the conference championship game, and then a bowl game. That would get you to five, which would be over the, the four-game limit. But those are players, I think, to be aware of. Um I wouldn't expect that they're going to play. I mean, maybe you see Sean Dollars and Patrick Herbert, who are both, I think, Dollars has played three, Herbert's played two. Um, those guys are maybe capable of getting out there. And maybe those are players you're going to see. I mean, I think with Sean Dollars um, and with how much Oregon has been wanting to run the football, uh, maybe there will be a situation here where the game gets kind of ugly and they hand the ball off to him. And I think Herbert, I, I, I've been kind of waiting all season for him to step up, and at this point I'm kind of going, like, I, I just don't know if it's in the cards this year, as cool as it would be to see Patrick Herbert, uh, you know, catch a touchdown pass or just catch a pass from his older brother. Uh, I, I'm starting to kind of wonder if that's something we can really even sort of expect to see, and maybe I'm being too short-sighted on that. Um, defensively, uh, it's there's not a lot of guys who I think are even on the radar there. Um you could look at somebody like Christian Williams or Keon Ware Hudson. I think they both played in three games um, as, as possible players that you could see play a little bit. Uh, Triquez Bridges and Suavi Poti are guys that have played, I think, in one game apiece. Maybe there's a little bit of possibility there. You've got Trevor Maye and Isaac Townsend who haven't played at all this season. I wouldn't expect that to change. So uh, just running through it, there aren't a lot of candidates, in my opinion, for guys that you could see played very much at the end of the season without burning the redshirt year. Um, again, I would say maybe Waters and Wilhoyt are the two that come to mind just because they haven't played at all this season. They're both highly regarded guys, but they're also in a position where I know we thought receiver was a weak point earlier on in the year, but like right now, unless these are blowout games, which I think we both think there's a possibility of it, I, I don't necessarily think that if this is a close game, they're going to – I would say I don't expect if it's a close game that they're going to throw either of those guys out there. Um, given the lack of like, experience they've got in in-game situations so far. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's there's not a lot of guys out there that fit the mold of, um, you know, they're going to play in three or four games this season, uh, you know, down the stretch. Um, there are certainly going to be guys that will get in one game or get in two games at, yeah. at various points this season because there's a there's a ton of guys that have. You know, three games, or they've played in two. Can't wear Hudson's played in three, so he's got one left. Jonah Tuwanu's got one game left to play along the offensive line. Uh, you've got, uh, like you said, Poti. He's played in one, so he could, he could be the guy on defense that you see a lot the next three weeks because he has three games left to play. Drew Mathis, junior college linebacker. He's played in three, so he's got one game left, and that's going to be a difficult decision to make. Do you keep playing him? Uh, or do you redshirt him, uh, and, you, and he has one game left to, to figure that out, or what, what they do. Um, there are a couple other guys on there. Patrick Herbert's played in two, so he's got two games left. Uh, other guys that are going to be interested to watch play, uh, Malasava uh, Lualu, uh, three offensive, offensive linemen. He's played in three games. They're trying to redshirt him. Uh, we'll see if that happens. Steven Jones is another one. Uh, another offensive lineman, sophomore. He's played in three games. Three out of the first four games of the year he's played and hasn't played in since. Uh, Cristobal has noted that if they can, they'd like to redshirt him. And that's, that's gotta be incredibly difficult to do because he's so talented. And yet if something happens and an injury plays out and he has to play, he's basically wasted a year. Uh, he, he has played in all four games. So, uh, but he hasn't played. Since what, when was it? Uh, he has not played since California. So he has missed the last four games, um, because they're trying to redshirt him. And so if something happens to a guy where Oregon's got to go out and throw him out on the field, that's going to be tough to eat because he's, he's basically wasted a year then because he's only, he will only have played in maybe, you know, six or seven of the games this season. So not a lot of freshmen, but there certainly are a couple upperclassmen guys that, Oregon's trying to see if they can redshirt and, and pull it off. Yeah, I, I should have mentioned Jones. That's a really good one, and that's actually like what a coup that would be if you could have a player of Jones's caliber. And if if you're unfamiliar with him, he's a high four star recruit. He's a guy who like Oregon staff absolutely has raved about all through fall, all through spring. As a guy who's going to be possibly starting next season and for you know the future at either guard or tackle, um, he's a big time football player. So you're right if they can find a way to basically save a year of eligibility this year, like that's a huge win for them because then you're looking at possibly three years of him starting, whether it's at tackle or, or guard up front for, for Oregon. I think that would be a, a humongous victory. And then Matt, uh, the second part of the question, on both sides of the football, what are the biggest remaining areas of need from a recruiting perspective? Um, I mean, I think ideally you'd love to find an inside linebacker that's probably the most important position left. And then, you know, two of the most important highly rated guys on the board for Oregon are at that position. Five star Justin Flo, fifth best player in the country. Noah Sewell is the 20th best player in the country and he's uh, an inside linebacker. So getting one, if not two of those guys would be a huge coup for Oregon's recruiting class and it would also help them uh, try and sign a top 10 recruiting class. Um, there's also the need, I think, for going out and signing one more defensive back. You know, Dante Manning, a four-star cornerback, is going to be visiting Oregon soon. Uh, Keely Ringo is a five-star cornerback that's been on campus already. Oregon's in the mix there. Um, I, I think a sneaky 
position that Oregon kind of needs some uh, one player at is tight end. Um, mm-hmm. you know, they're, I, I, I think Spencer Webb's going to be pretty good down the road. Patrick Herbert is certainly talented and has a lot of potential. Um, Ryan Bay and Hunter Camp, Ryan Bay is a senior, so he, he will graduate. Uh, Breland is hurt and graduates. And then Hunter Camp Moyer is a junior, so he'll be gone in two seasons. And all that means is you're left with Spencer Webb and, and Patrick Herbert. And so they've got Seth Figgins coming in, but he's been hurt all of this year, has hardly played any football. He's been hurt, uh, the previous two seasons as well. Uh, and, and so he hasn't played a ton of football. And I, and so I, I think, in an ideal world, if you can make the numbers work, going out and finding one more tight end um, to bring in just to have one extra body there, because maybe you know maybe Figgins comes into Oregon is, and stays healthy and, and is really good, but his history just kind of makes you pause for a second. So I think finding one more tight end would also be really good for, for this program. Um, and then after that, it's just kind of luxury, like. What what elite player could you go out and find uh, to to fit for this recruiting class? Maybe a defensive lineman um, would would be would help be helpful, especially if it's a D tackle nose tackle type prospect. Yeah, I think the tight end thing is a great point. Um, if if we suppose that maybe McCormick, well, even McCormick and Campmore, they're both gone after the 2020 season, and and you would I think would like to have a couple of experienced guys besides Webb and and Herbert available for 2021. Sixth question. Here's a basketball question from at Altman Fever. Now that we've seen a few games for both the men and the women, early impressions on these squads. Uh, well, we should mention that the women won last night, 89-47 over Northeastern in their home openers, a 3 p.m. tip-off, and yet the place was almost packed. I think there was eight, they reported 8,000 uh, you know tickets sold, or, or that was the attendance. So really impressive showing there in terms of just the fan support. And like I was saying. To Matt off there, like I, I was, it was kind of an interesting game because Oregon won by 42, and yet I didn't think they played particularly well. Like they were nine for 36 from three. Uh, Sabrina Escu didn't really have a very good game by her standards. You know, she scored 30 against Team USA, 20 in the third quarter. She only had 12 on Monday. Um, the story though in that game was just the the bigs up front. Lydia Giomi, who we have too high of expectations for based upon her career previously, 18 points, nine rebounds, and then Ruthie Hebert. 21 and 12. So good to see the front court play well. I think some of the young guards played high level at times. Mignon Moore continues to be extremely impressive. Um, she didn't score a ton, but her activeness defensively in terms of forcing steals, of even blocking shots at five foot eight, she had a couple of those. And, and, and actually, her court vision passing the ball really stood out to me. So uh, we know this team's talented. They didn't have Satu Sabli on Monday. They won't have her for the rest of this week because she's playing with the German national team. But I think you have to be really excited with what you've seen so far on the women's side of things. Yeah, as, as for the men, um, really impressed more so just with the connectivity that this group has shown um, early on in the season just because there's so many new faces. You know, there's only three returning players, and one of those guys, Francis Okoro, got hit by a car and could not play in Saturday's game. I mean, he's... Dana Alma said after the game that he's fine and, you know, he went to the hospital and got checked out and everything came back fine, but he just, he didn't play in that game. And, and yet they scored 106 points. Uh, they made, I think, 13 three pointers. Anthony Mathis, a senior grad transfer, made a Matt Nat Arena record for nine three pointers in a game. Um, I'm, I've been very impressed with just the connectivity that this group has. They're not necessarily playing 
the cleanest game of basketball yet. The freshmen, I think all three of them, um, are having some freshman moments early on, especially as CJ Walker. You know, I'm sure he's frustrated. He probably wanted to come in, five star recruit, wanted to play really well, uh, you know, put up some big numbers early on and make a statement, especially when, when Okoro got hurt, you know, he was put into the starting lineup and he's just scored two points. He fouled out, uh, the, the second game of the, of the year as well. But I, I think the, the, the bigger theme is, is that Oregon's been able to allow these freshmen to make some mistakes, allow them to grow and not be asked in previous years to be the guy or to be the second best player on the, on the group. You know, they've got upper experience, upper echelon players in Peyton Pritchard, uh, Shakur Justin, Anthony Mathis and Chris Duarte, plus returning underclassmen in Okoro and Richardson, uh, to be able to just kind of ease these freshmen along. Uh, obviously we're recording this before Memphis. Memphis though will, will show us a ton, um, about where this team is at. And at the same time though, like, I don't think it's going to mean a lot either because what if Francis Okoro doesn't play? I mean, Oregon scheduled this game with the understanding that Infale Dante and Francis Okoro would be on this team and they would have the front court depth to battle James Wiseman, the projected number one pick in seven foot one center, you know, freshman player of the year or number one ranked prospect in, in the last recruiting class. Well, Infale Dante had NCAA eligibility issues and, Francis Coro, like I said earlier, was hit by a car and may not play. He's a game time decision. So, you know, if, if they don't have a Coro in this game and, and, and Wiseman goes to town, you know, I'm going to look at it as like, okay, like Wiseman played well. Obviously that, that was the game plan, but you know, Oregon was not at full strength. How did everyone else do, um, in, in that capacity? If they win, I think that that tells you a heck of a lot of, of this program. Uh, and where they're going. I, overall, though, I, I, I'm very impressed with this group. Uh, I, I think once they get all their pieces on the roster, which will happen December, middle of December, um, this group will, will be, you know, on a path to, to be really, really good. The seventh question from at Hodges Ryan. We kind of discussed some of the stuff, but I think more, uh, more just kind of playoff talk. Who should Duck fans be rooting for if they want to make the playoff? Obviously, there are two obvious choices, Utah and Auburn, but who else? And, He's right. I think if Utah and Auburn went out, that nearly is enough to get Oregon at least – they'd be really, really close because then you're talking about, like we said earlier, Alabama and Georgia have two losses. Oregon gets to play Utah with one loss. That sets up that premier team there that, that Oregon can – if they win that game, that's the premier victory. That's the game that you can point to and say, hey, look, you know, last game of the – last game right before you guys make this decision, we went out and we played a really good football team that only lost one time all season and we beat them. Um, other teams that are kind of interesting, like I think be aware of the fact that Baylor's still unbeaten, uh, and, and Baylor I know is is a little bit behind Oregon in the college football playoff standings and in the AP and the coaches poll. But Baylor is if, if Baylor were to be undefeated, they'd probably get in. I think it would be hard not to put yeah. them in. But, but hey, you're a power five team, you go undefeated, you're, you're in. Right, exactly. So beware of Baylor. They play, they host Oklahoma this weekend. That's a huge game. Strangely, I guess, like, that's actually kind of a tough game if you're an Oregon fan. Like, what do you want to happen there? Because if Baylor wins that game, they're, they, they only play Texas and Kansas the last two games, and that sets up them pretty nicely. But if Oklahoma wins, now suddenly Oklahoma now has a marquee victory over Baylor to point to, and they finish with games with TCU and at Oklahoma State, and those are winnable games. So that's actually a, a tough game to really call in terms of, like, what you want to happen, because 
say Oklahoma beats Baylor, well, now suddenly Oklahoma has one loss. Their loss is obviously to a much worse team. It's Kansas State, but they have a much better win than Oregon has over Baylor um, to go along with the win over Texas, who's kind of fallen off a little bit. But that's, those are two better wins than probably Oregon has, so maybe that is advantage sooner. So that's one to be aware of. Uh, this weekend as well, uh, Clemson-Wake Forest. Uh, you want Wake Forest to win that game. Clemson is not going to lose probably if they don't this weekend, but they're hosting Wake Forest, and I know Wake Forest is ranked, but and Matt and I actually watched Wake Forest play NC State a couple weeks ago uh, when we were down at USC, and, and Wake Forest is, is a pretty decent team, but I, I don't expect that game to go that way, but that's a team to be aware of. And then in the Big Ten, it gets sort of interesting here with, with Minnesota, finishes their season at Iowa, at Northwestern, and then hosting Wisconsin. Either of those, you're probably wanting to be a Hawkeye or, or a Badger fan right now in terms of that would knock Minnesota out because, again, Minnesota's like Baylor, is undefeated right now. They actually have that marquee win against Penn State. If they slip up, uh, that would you know pretty much eliminate them from the college football discussion. Um, and, and then you've got Ohio State, who I don't think they're going to lose, but you want Penn State or Michigan in those last two weeks uh, to knock them off, to possibly push them out. But I even think the way, the way Ohio State is appreciated nationally I don't even know if a one-loss Ohio State is like fully guaranteed to be out of the playoff. They probably aren't. Um, so that, that's 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 just a handful of, of, of teams that you kind of want to be rooting for. Basically, you're rooting for full mayhem, <laughs> and you just <laughs> you just want every team that's even in the vicinity of Oregon to lose. The only game that sort of is kind of like I don't know which way you want to go is Oklahoma Baylor, just because if Baylor wins, they're probably going to go unbeaten, and that makes them kind of interesting. If Oklahoma wins, suddenly Oklahoma's got that win, and that makes a Big 12 team sort of enticing as well, but um, yeah, just you, you want chaos if you're an Oregon fan, and you want Oregon to keep winning. I think that's the simplest formula. Well said. All right. Eighth question, and this is uh, we uh, we should mention if you're a Duck Territory subscriber, or even if you're just posting on the website, we have a thread um, pinned to the board. It's a Mailbag Wednesday's question thread. Um, this last question comes from that thread. So if you uh, are not on social media. Um, and you feel like you can't get questions to us, go ahead and drop on the site and, and, and drop a question in there. I, I will be checking those along with Twitter and, and other forms of social media for questions. This one comes from Lucid Nomad. All I want for Christmas is a high four or five-star defensive tackle. Washington has seemed to land more highly ranked defensive tackles the past few cycles in Oregon. It seems like the only position Oregon can't recruit is a mid to high four-star defensive tackle. When will they get over the hump? Matt, do you think it's this year? Do you think it's down the line? Kind of what are you, what are, you, what are your thoughts on uh, the interior defensive line positions? You know, I, I don't think there's going to be like a five-star D tackle that commits to Oregon. I'm not anticipating that. Um, a, a top 100 prospect in the country that's a, that's a defensive lineman. I don't think that happens either for Oregon this year. And, and I understand like, you know, the desire and the want to getting, you know, one of those big time players. That's highly rated. You know, Asiaka Aka last year who went to LSU was, you know, a big blow. It would have been awesome to see Oregon sign that guy. But I look at Oregon's recruiting and development of players um, since Joe Salavea has arrived. And I don't see, you know, yeah, you want the best player you can get possible. And I'm not saying it's it's bad that, you know, stay away from five-star and high four-star D linemen. But at the same time, like, Oregon's getting good development along the defensive line. I mean, we saw Jalen Jelks really elevate himself along the D line under Joe Salavea. Same thing with Justin Hollins between linebacker and D end. Uh, we've, we've seen 
Jordan Scott show up and be a freshman All American, and now I think as as a junior. He's going to be an all Pac-12 caliber player and someone that I think that has the opportunity to, to go pro uh, after this year. And then, you know, last season alone, they signed two four-star D linemen. Kristen, excuse me, Kristen Williams uh, and Keanu Ware Hudson. Four, you know, four, four-star guys that can play the D line position. Um, Brandon Dorless is another big name that's, that's played in games this season. Suave Poti was a highly re- regarded recruit that suffered an injury and saw his recruitment uh, dip a little bit because of it. But before that injury happened, he was a big time player. Oregon stood behind him. Um, so I, 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 I get the, the sentiment of, Hey, you want to go out and you want to sign this elite guy. And, and yeah, that matters. But at the same time, it doesn't matter if you can't develop those players. And if you're developing players, eventually they'll come. You know, they signed Kayvon Thibodeau, by the way. Can't believe I didn't mention him. Five-star offensive lineman, right? Like one of the best players in the country, a top-five player in the country. Um, now, granted, I'm sure uh, this is a question geared more towards D tackles than defensive yeah. linemen, um, so that that matters a little bit. But you know, Oregon's making headway, and and I look at Utah, and I know it's not Oregon, but I look at Utah, and they don't sign four-star D linemen. They don't certainly sign five-star D linemen, and every year they have. A guy that seems to get drafted from from their defensive line, and they always have one of the best defensive lines in the entire country, uh, and that's because of skill development. I mean, recruiting is half the battle. It's probably more than half the battle. But if you can develop your players, you can you can be still very very good. And I think Oregon's trending in that direction, where their their history under Salave is showing that they can they can turn guys into stars into really good players along the defensive line. And now, you know, it's it's just taking that that production and having it spread out across a recruiting platform where, you know, they can get the attention of guys down the road to, to come to Oregon. But that being said, the talent is is upgrading along the defensive line on you know the last few seasons. Yeah, I don't think there's any question the talent's getting better up front. And I think that's maybe an underrated part of why this defense has been so good is They've been very stout up front against the run, and it's not just been Jordan Scott. They've been rotating guys in there. So I think really good points in terms of, like, I know we get hung up on the star rankings and stuff like that, and I know that, I mean, it would be great to land one of those guys who's considered, like, a consensus he's going to be a first-round draft pick in a couple of years at defensive tackle. But also be aware of, like, you don't have to sign. I think Utah's a great example. You don't have to go sign all the five- and four-star guys. You can sign some some players, and you can develop them. And Joe Salovey has done, I think, a really good a really, really good job of, of doing that for Oregon. All right, I think that's going to do it for us here on the Austin Audible's podcast. Thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for sending in your your questions each and every week. We really appreciate that as well. Uh, and until next week when we do another one of these, we'll talk to you soon. Adios, amigos. Baseball has begun, which means you need to listen to Fantasy Baseball Today in 5, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. Join Scott White, Chris Towers, and me, Frank Samphill, every Monday through Saturday as we deliver all of your fantasy baseball needs in just five minutes. We'll break down the biggest performers, news, and prospects who could make an impact this season. Make sure to download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and everywhere else podcasts are found. 